Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend Al Chavruta, Yodena Azband. Our daf of the day, Masech Psachim, daf Samachet, page 68. Our daf continues on the topic of the different kinds of camps and the different kinds of impurities that will separate different kinds of impurities into different camps. And then we have, after a whole lot of that, it's a very long daf, after a whole lot of that, we end up with some real departures from our regularly scheduled program here about the Korban Pesach and about the, even about the Tumantara and about the blood of the Korban. It's not fully separated, meaning it still comes in as part of what's going on, but it is really not the topic at hand. And so we're going to make our departure with the Daf and talk about some of the different details and points and interesting, I think, pieces of information on this Daf. I would say that one of the things that happens, and it's on Ahmed Aleph, maybe it even happens again later, but we have some really intricate analysis of biblical verses, right? So we've talked about Midrash Halakha, and we've talked about how we have had Dapim since the beginning of Sachim that take the biblical verses and kind of darshan them, explicate them to try to understand where exactly we're getting the Halakha from. I would say that on this staff, we have less Halakha even and more philosophical, theological content, and yet still coming from this same kind of darshaning of psukim, you know, explicating of the biblical text. So, and and it even gets complicated. So, at a, at, I don't know, midway, I guess, or maybe towards the end of Ahmed Aleph, oh, it's hard to say, I guess midway through Ahmed Aleph, there is a real discussion. I mean, we're still in the discussion of the Korban Pesach, and it's talking about the intestines and how you clean the intestines. And from there, we end up with a verse from the book of Isaiah, Sefer Yishayahu, and suddenly we're talking about the righteous and the wicked, and meaning it's a springboard off of this verse. And that's only half of the biblical ta- the biblical verse, that same one. It's chapter 5, verse 17, Hey, get Zion. And then the Gemara continues and explains the second half of that verse, meaning we've been moving through this content, you know, that led us from actual halacha to a verse that makes a point to a different kind of interpretation of the verse to let's get to the second part of the verse where, um, and again, it, it, now we're talking about prophecy and the prophecy is going to be about, um, again, the, the ruins of the fat one shall wanderers eat, right? This is, again, it's another, it's a continuation of the verse in, in Isaiah, in Yishayahu, and the the reason I want to mention all of this is that just to explain how far afield the text is taking us. And then we ha- we get to some meat, I would say, in terms of our discussion. Ela Amarava, Kidrav Hanan El Amarav, Damarav Hanan El Amarav, Atidin Sadikin, Shechyu et Shechyu et Hamitim. In the future, the righteous will resurrect the dead. Now, straight away, you know, this is esoteric and it is really far removed from the, I don't know what, the practical goings-on of the Beit HaMikdash. And it's coming off of the verse. And here's another verse, Ketiv Hacha. This is what, it, uh, the verse above, rather. Ketiv Hacha, v'ra'uk v'asim kidavram. The lambs will feed at, uh, in their pasture. Ketiv hatam yiru bashan v'gilad kime olam. And the you should let them uh, let them feed in Bashan and in Gilad like the days of yore. And these this verse is in Micha, Micha chapter seven, um, verse fourteen. And it's really actually Micha and Yeshayahu are contemporaries as far as the prophecy itself goes. So 
the idea that the righteous will resurrect the dead because of this verse in Micha is interesting. The verse in Micha doesn't say anything about resurrecting the dead. It says that lambs will feed in the pasture. And then the idea of let them feed in Bashan and in Gilad as once upon a time. Now, what does Bashan and Gilad have to do with this? Well, this, and the Gemara continues, Bashan ze Elisha, Haba min Habashan. Apparently, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, came from Bashan, from the place. So then the very fact that the verse mentions Bashan, it must be talking about Elisha. That he judged in Bashan. Right, because he's the heir, basically, to Eliyahu. And so he poured the water on the hands of Eliyahu. This is a quote from Malachim. And, and that's it. I mean, the Gemara is pleased with now having established that this reference to Bashan is a reference to Elisha. And it continues, Gilad ze Eliyahu. And now we're going to put them together so that the reference in that verse of Bashan and Gilad, Gilad now means Eliyahu, how so? The very fact that Eliyahu, he's known as the Tishbi, right? He's a Tishbite. And he was known to dwell amongst the dwellers, I guess, of Gilad. And that is a verse from the Book of Kings, Malachim Aleph, chapter 17. Chapter 17. So, now we've got basically verses and a and and a reference from the one place to the and the other place to these two very fine um, prominent prophets, and in the same way that the righteous, namely Eliyahu and Elisha, who each of them in different ways, I guess, were considered to resurrect the dead. Um, no, I'm sorry. Let me say this correctly. The righteous are going to be like Eliyahu and Elisha. Yes, who each in their own way resurrected the dead. Alicia's story, I think, is more known in this, in, this, in this particular capacity. But what's interesting to me here is not even the idea that the righteous can resurrect the dead, because I can take that on, on face value and accept it without difficulty. What's interesting to me here is that there's a lot of play of the biblical verse and verses and dealing with the allusions to, to get to this point, right? It's not something that I would say the biblical verses teach us that the righteous will resurrect the dead. Rather, it's, you know, there's a statement of the righteous will resurrect the dead. And now we're going to jump through hoops, really hoops, to get to the verses that will support such an idea. And then, Amr of Shmuel, Bar Nachmani, Amr Yonatan. So the same idea of the righteous resurrecting the dead comes from another source as well. And to which I say, well, that is a relief. In the future, the righteous will resurrect the dead. As there's a verse, this is a very famous verse, and it's a very beautiful image of you know the old men and the old women who will yet again one day dwell in the streets of Jerusalem. Each person, each man, it's literally man, each with his staff in his hand uh, for for the very old, right? The or for Merov Yamim. It's somebody who's needing a staff to get to navigate. And this staff is the idea that this is the whole story of Elisha, which brings us back to Elisha, of course, um, when he goes to resurrect the son of the Shunamite woman. And it says there, you will put my staff on the face of the child. So that's the process of the resurrection. So now you've got a staff in the hands of the 
elderly, and the elderly here are considered to be the righteous, and it is still a, a play of Psukim to get to this point, but maybe less so, or more directly anyway, than um, than the first dance of Psukim. And it's not surprising to me, because Rav Shmuel Bar Nachmani really is, uh, I, we find him to be just a master of, of um, drasha, of spr- springboarding off of biblical verses, and, and you know, taking them further afield in a way that nonetheless works with the biblical text. So I feel like here the Gemara is kind of teaching us how to engage in parshanuta mikra, how to engage in explication of text in ways that we might not have intuitively thought when we come to the biblical verses on their own. Uh, yeah, it's a nice little piece here in the Gemara where it's really trying to work through uh, different psukim. And I'm just so impressed. Like, remember, this is before there was printed text like this was not readily available this was just known stone cold like that these psukim were really memorized so to have such good memorization and understanding that you really could go through these series of psukim and try to figure out like well one seems to say this and one seems to say that and how do you sort of you know uh you know what do you learn from those contexts or what do you learn when the psukim seem to contradict each other i i don't know it just shows like how well they really knew these psukim and knew tanakh um I want to jump ahead uh, to a couple things here. And I know, and then you'll tie it up again at the end. Um, so there's one of my favorite pieces here about Shmuel, which I now think is the third time that we've seen it. We saw Masachat Brachot. I believe we saw it in Masachat Erevin. And then now we see it again in Masachat Pesachim. And so the Gemara's, you know, going through different psukim that seem to contradict each other about what will actually happen um, either in the times of Mashiach or in the world to come. And so one of the things it, you know, comes to is it's looking at this pasuk that's in um, Yishayahu, right? We're talking, you know, about the moon um, and the sun. And, you know, its resolution is, is that one pasuk refers to the world to come. One pasuk refers to the times of Mashiach. And they bring in again this statement of Shmuel, which again, the fact that it appears now for the third time means they were really taken by this principle that Shmuel contends that when Mashiach comes, nothing will be different other than the sort of, you know, Shibun Machio, the subjugation that the Jewish people will have in various exiles, but essentially the world will just work the way it does. Like there will be sickness, there could be war, there will be poverty. Like it doesn't mean that everything's going to be fixed and, and sort of this idealistic utopia. Um, and so they want to understand then. So then how could it be that this Pasuk is referring to something that will happen in Mosa Mashiach, right? There will be a change with the sun and the moon because according to Shmuel, nothing's going to change. It's just the Shibud Malchiot. It's going to be completely the same. And easy. Although easy. let's note, let's note that that's quite a bit, right? To say that there'll be no oppression of B'nai Israel of the Jewish people is still a pretty large statement. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. But I just think it's, more interesting to me that they keep coming back to it. Like, in other words, yes, why does yes, it I need hear. to line up with Shmuel? Like, that's Shmuel's opinion. So he'll figure out something else to do with these psukim. Um, and so what do they say he does with it? So according to Shmuel, the, you know, these verses would refer to um, Olam Haba, right? And there's no difficulty. One would be sort of the one that talks about the, the, the uh, you know, that the moon and the sun won't you know, be bright anymore is the camp of the Shechina, right? And because, in other words, the idea is, is that when you're in the camp of the Shechina, you won't need any other light. 
And the pasuk that refers to that there still will, there will be an increase in their brightness, right, is the refer, is the camp of the tzaddikim. Um, and, you know, the Mepharshim sort of explained maybe you still would need them. But I just thought this was interesting on twofold. One is that they keep coming back to Shmuel. And the second is, is that we sort of come back to the idea of different machanot, different camps, when we get to Olam Haba, which to me also makes sense of sort of why this text would appear here, because we were in the middle of this great discussion about all the machanot, the three different machanot of the Shekhinah, the Levim, and the Israelim, and how they're related to Tuman Tara. And so here they're relating it back to the machanot that will be in Shemayim. Um, anything before I move on with that, Anne? No, no, go, go. Oh, okay, no, I'm going on. Okay. So now the Gemara gets to another interesting piece, which I think has a really interesting version of what will happen, um, you know, it, with the Tzachiyas HaMesim, right? Rav Arami. So Rav now is going to contrast two verses, right? Ani Amid um, which is a pasuk that appears in Devarim, Perak Lamed Bet, Pasuk Lamed Tet, right? I put to death and I make live. Ukativ Machatziti Vani Arpeh, right? I have wounded and then I will heal, Um um, and, you know, so the question basically is, well, if he can bring something to life, like if he can resurrect the dead God, how, of course, he can heal the ill. Why do you need both of those clauses there? Ella, Amar, Amar, Kodesh Baruch Hu, right? So Rav is going to explain here. This is what Hashem would say. Right? When I put something to death, I can make it live. I can revive the person who Hashem caused to die, just as somebody who I wounded, I can heal. In other words, don't think that his powers are just giving life to those who haven't died yet. He can even give somebody who died sort of new life. And then the Gemara goes on to say, again, quoting this pasuk, So it could be that when this pasuk is read, right, we could say that there's like death on one person, and life goes to another person. In other words, a person's either in a state of death or either in a state of life. So it says, right, they, the, the phrase of, you know, I have wounded and I will heal is next to it. Just as wounding and healing can be on the same person. Like, in other words, once you get a wound, you're wounded, but you also are starting your process of healing at the same time. So you can be wounded and healed at the same moment. So, so too, you could have a person who's dead and also be alive at the same time. So from here, we actually have a reputation for those who say that maybe the is not actually from the Torah itself. So first of all, I think it's interesting to see that they were sort of trying to figure out here, um, you know, uh, it wasn't so clear that is something that appears in the Torah itself, right? And that this, you know, saying that um, you you have to have, you know, th- that God could bring, this would be a refutation for those who say that it doesn't exist in the Torah would be the interpretation of this pasuk. But it's interesting that they're sort of acknowledging that there were those who felt that was not necessarily from the Torah. And then the last piece here, which I thought was very interesting, God teaches that in the beginning, what I put to death, right, I will later make live. What I wounded, I will heal. And so what this is basically saying is, is that those who died with a particular wound, like let's say 
you died and you were blind or you were deaf or you had a limb that didn't work, you will come back during Tehiyanam 18 that way. And then God will heal you. So, because in other words, the idea is, is that you die, right? You live, right? Machitzi, you were wounded, and then you will heal. And I thought that was also interesting. I haven't totally processed what that means theologically, you know, that you sort of don't come back as with all of your ailments fixed, but that almost there's going to be a process where that healing comes a little bit later. I think that, honestly, I think that a lot of these statements are going to require some post, post-podcast processing. Um, you know, the, the, these, these statements are, are sweeping and theological and I hope profound. And, you know, no matter how many times we're going to explain them, I'm not sure that we can uh, do justice beyond the pondering that people need to do on their own, if that's a fair thing yeah, to say. No, I, I agree. I just wanted to sort of pull out the ones that, you know, the, the piece about Shmuel and this whole pasuk and, and you know, what it will actually look like um, for Tzachiyah Samitim. I just thought the idea that you don't come back necessarily with everything fixed, but you'll be healed afterwards was very interesting to me. And again, it's based on a close reading of the text, which I thought was most fascinating. I think it's very fascinating. I think also so many of us have, you know, learned the concept of resurrection of the dead, either because we learn it from the translation of the Amida, right? When you come to David, or you learn it as a, in school, you know, someone, and, and they never give you this degree of the full story. And I'm not saying this is the full story. We obviously, have, that's what I mean, that we have to ponder it longer. We're talking about, I don't know what, after this world, it's a whole different kind of thing. But the fact that it's juxtaposed, I think, Yodina, with Shmuel's statement about Ain Bain, you know, there's no difference between this world and the Yemotah Mashiach. And then we're going to talk about Tzchiyat HaMetim. And so many, so often I find people kind of conflate the time of Mashiach and you know, and when is Acharita Yamim? And we have plenty of philosophers who write about this. I'm, it's always good, I think, to find the sources in the Gemara. For sure. Um, and then last, I'm going to just move on. You know, there's a very interesting discussion on Ahmed Bet about what the obligation is of, um, of, uh, of, of Yom Tov, right? How are we supposed to celebrate Yom Tov? And so it says the following, Detanya was taught in a bracelet, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, a person basically has no obligations on Yom Tov. And I love the description of this. He can eat and drink or he can sit and study. In other words, it's your day to do whatever you want to do. Rabbi Yeshua He says, no, you divide the day. Half of it is your day. Eat and drink, do what you want. And half of the day should really be devoted to um, to sort of studying or, um, you know, to Hashem, basically. Um, and then the Gemara is going to go on and, you know, figure out how did they get to that. And, and it has to do with, um, you know, uh, an interpretation of a Pasuk and Devarim. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit ahead here. And I'm sure we're going to talk. I feel like this Gemara will appear again in, in Beitza, which talks about many of the Halachot. Um, but then it gets to a Another, so I, first of all, I just thought that was totally interesting. That, in other words, like Rabbi Eliezer is sort of holding it's a day to do what you want. And also, we haven't developed Rabbi Eliezer's uh, personality well yet, but he's a little harif. Um, and we'll see that particularly in the story of Tanur Shalaknai. And Rabbi Yeshua is not. And it's interesting that it's Rabbi Eliezer who's the one who's like, yeah, it should just be like a day for yourself. And it's Rabbi Yeshua is like, no, half is for Hashem and half is for you. 
And it doesn't completely fit their personalities to me, which is also just what's interesting about those opinions to me. But now the Gemara skipped down a little bit, goes, Amar um, Rabbi Eliezer, and they have this pneumonic care of Aban, right? Which is Atzeret Purim, even though there's a bet, uh, a bet there. Um, at, well, sorry, it's for Atzeret Shabbat and Purim. Right, Hakol Modim. So Rabbi Eliezer says, "I'm really Eliezer." Hakol Modim about Sarah. Everybody Wait, can we just, agrees. Uh, can you just acknowledge yeah. that the mnemonic isn't alphabetical? The mnemonic doesn't fit the alphabetical at all. Yeah, right. Meaning it's it a, yeah. there's a letter in the middle of the word and at the end of the word, and yeah, we'll so call the that an acrostic. I even said it right. Yeah. So the ayin is for Atzeret, which is Shavuot. The bet is for Shabbat, and the mem is for the last word of Purim. Yes, it's totally not a straightforward mnemonic. So Rabbi Eliezer says the following. Um, uh, right now we're talking about Rabbi Elazar, not Rabbi Eliezer. So Rabbi Elazar says this following: Hakol Modim Ba'atzeret. Everybody agrees that on that Sarah, Debaina, right? Debaina Nami Lachem. That we also require, and they quote this pasuk here, right? Of uh, you know, the, uh, this this group of that you need. Well, sorry, it's a pasuk, right? Atzeret Lachem, which technically means. There should be, it's a pasuk in Bamidbar, Perak Chavtet, Pasuk Lamed Hey, uh, which means it should be an assembly for you. Um, and so therefore, it, the implication of how they understood, and again, this is the source of the Machlokas between Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yoshua, is that particularly on Shemini Atzeret, you have to partake in like physical things. Like you, you have to enjoy materialistic things. So everybody agrees that's true of Atzeret because of this pasuk. My time of what's the reason? Yoshen Nabo Torahu. Because it's the day that the Torah was given. Now, again, I find this fascinating because it's a demonstration of rejoicing that you got the Torah. I could see the opposite where it's sort of like, no, it's the Torah. It's this, you know, holy thing. So, like, why would you spend the day, like, eating and drinking? But I love the way that it's integrating and acknowledging that, like, that's how humans express joy. It's like we do do some of these physical things. We don't need to steer away from that in order to express joy. And I think there's a tremendous Jewish value in what this is being expressed about, that the way to celebrate the Torah is exactly through eating and drinking and things like that. Then Amar Rabbah, Rabbah comes and says, So we also agree that on Shabbat, we have to do this thing of, you know, we have to enjoy physical things. My time, why? Because the pasuk, um, and here this is a pasuk in, um, uh, you know, where it says the word, um, Oneg, I, I don't remember where this, I think this is in Yishayahu, this pasuk, yes. It's in Yishayahu, Perik, uh, Sadi, sorry, Nunchet, uh, Yud Gimel, 58.13, right? That you will call Shabbat a, a delight, it will be an Oneg. I'm a Rav Yosef, Rav Yosef says, Even Purim, we require this, you know, enjoyment of physical things. My Right, because the pasuk in Esther, Migilat Esther, in chapter nine, verse 22 says it will be days of feasting and rejoicing. Um, so it's interesting to see, you know, that they sort of single out three specific holidays that, you know, have a little bit more of a requirement for this enjoyment piece. Um, and again, I really like that it's a Jewish value, but then they get sort of don't get too excited about that. Then they tell the story of a Ravina who basically fasted the entire year, except for Shemini, except for, sorry, excuse me, except for Shavuot, Purim and Erev Yom Kippur, which I thought was sort of like the opposite value of what was being expressed here, but just a very, very nice passage, you know, uh, particularly the piece about like why celebrating the giving of the Torah specifically would be linked with eating and drinking. 
So then what happens is because we've talked about Shavuot here, we've got a discussion. The Gemara continues with the discussion of Rav Yosef, who on Shavuot, Rav Yosef, on the day of Atzeret, which is, again, Shavuot, Amar Avdili Eglatilta. He would offer or prepare, he would have a special festive meal, I guess, of what's called here a third-born calf, which seems to be like the the choice, it's the expression that means the choicest meat, or maybe there's something very special about the third, this in fact, this age of the calf that it's going to have, the, again, the choicest meat. Amar, and he says, Elohai Yoma Garim Kama Yosef Ika Bashuka. He said, if, it, if this were not the day, meaning if there was not this day of Shavuot where the Torah was given to, or that the, the, the day gave the, to, let me say this carefully, that the Torah was given to the Jewish people, right? But it says it a little bit trickier than that. If this day had not caused the Jewish people to get the Torah, how many Yosefs would there be in the shuk, in the market? What does it mean, how many Yosefs? Meaning he's Yosef, how many could there be? And the issue is really, it seems that he had, um, the commentaries explain, that Rav Yosef was exceptional in his learning capacity. He remembered the entire Torah. So he basically says, like, if, if the Torah had been given by God to directly... Um, to everybody, right? All of the Torah would be given to everybody, then nobody would ever forget, forgotten it. And then there would be nothing left for him to do, meaning everybody would be at the same capacity as his level of exposition and erudition. But because the Torah was given to Moshe on Har Sinai, and that's the festival of Shavuot, then when Rav Yosef comes along to kind of to pull more out from the Torah that was given, then he becomes he becomes the leader of, of learning and of the... Uh, well, really, for the explication of the Torah itself. So his expertise in Torah study kicks in because of the way the Torah was given and the idea that we all would have remembered every last word of it had we only but heard it directly from God, I think is a really interesting premise. And then the Gemara continues, Rav Sheshet, So Rav Sheshet, and we've encountered Rav Sheshet before, Rav Sheshet, every 30 days would review all of his, the Torah that he had learned over that month. And then, he would stand and lean against the bolt of the door, and he would say, my soul should be rejoicing. Because I have read Karai, Psukim, Tanakh, Biblical text, Lach Tanai, and also Mishnah, right? Tanai is the Aramaic for the word for Mishnah. So, right, he's not, he can't talk about the Gemara because he's in the Gemara, but he has a text in front of him, namely the biblical text and the Mishnahic text. Eni, the Gemara says, but is that so? The Ha'amar Rabbi Elazar, didn't Rabbi Elazar say, Torah, If it were not, Rabbi Elazar says, or didn't, the Gemara says, didn't not Eliezer, I'm sorry, didn't Rebbe Lazar say, were it not for the Torah, meaning the Torah and people learning Torah, then we wouldn't have Shemayim and Aretz. We wouldn't even have heaven and earth, meaning the Torah is what sustains heaven and earth. This is a verse from Yirmiyahu from the book of Jeremiah. 
chapter 33, verse 25. And that's exactly where it says, God says, you know, I made this covenant um, the entirety of the night and the day, and I would not have set the laws upon the heaven and the earth, meaning the assumption is that this is when Torah is being learned, meaning all the time. That's how we are, Mekayim. That's how we uphold the, the heavens and the earth. And the Gemara answers here and says, well, yes, that's true. We're talking about when a person comes to do a mitzvah, then he's doing it for himself, right? Meaning when you do a mitzvah, you're not thinking, with this mitzvah, I am upholding the entirety of the world. And that's true even for learning Torah. You think, I'm learning Torah. You might think it's a mitzvah. You certainly presumably are f- focusing on the content, but you're not thinking about the fact that with that, you are now upholding, uh, maintaining or sustaining the entire world. So Rav Sheshit's limud, his, his learning here, um, his review of it every month is, I guess, where he gets to take that pause and th- and reflect on, you know, beyond himself, how much is happening. He starts with rejoice my soul, meaning he's excited about the learning that he does. But then the Gemara follows on that and says, you know, hello, you're also doing an- the next step, which is sustaining the the very existence of the world. Yeah, it's a... Look, it's a very nice piece, and I think it's also nice that it acknowledges, you know, even Rav Sheshet, right? Like, he still did it for himself, or it starts out that way, and that's okay, because we're human. That's our enough discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us, where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about, oh, the resurrection of the dead, the time of Mashiach, how your learning sustains the world, and you. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until until tomorrow, go and learn. 